Welcome to Page, the podcast where writers dissect a single page of their book. I'm your host, Abby Hollick, and each week I'll be speaking to a different best-selling memoirist or non-fiction writer about their most frank, moving, or hilarious page. I pick the standout page that examines a breakthrough moment and invite the author to dig deeper. Along the way, we learn a thing or two about how to survive and cope with whatever life flings at us. Arifa Akbar, The Guardian's chief theatre critic, has written a stunning new memoir. The book is called Consumed, and it's a story of grief, sisterhood, and the power of art to help us heal. In 2016, Arifa's older sister, Fauzia, died of a mysterious illness at the age of 45. In the months leading up to her death, she experienced night sweats, inflamed lungs, and her face began to swell. Infectious disease specialists at the Royal Free Hospital in London were utterly baffled. It was not until the day after a fatal brain hemorrhage that the doctors said it was tuberculosis. Aretha investigates how a leading hospital could have missed this ancient but curable disease. The book charts Aretha's quest to understand her sister through the beautiful artwork and embroidery she has left behind and to unpick how growing up in poverty moving from Lahore to London, and the shockingly different ways in which their father treated them affected their bond. The sisters had been close as teenagers, before Fauzia's eating disorder and depression ultimately led to their estrangement for several years. They reconciled before Fauzia's death, and in this love letter to her sister, Arifa celebrates Fauzia's talent as an artist and her ability to speak out loudly and boldly about her mental health, rather than being silenced and shamed by society. Aretha, welcome to Paige. Thank you so much for coming on. Hello. Hi. hi. That's a lovely summary of, of the book. Thank you. It's really sensitive. Oh, yeah. good. Well, I'd love you to read page 112 of Consumed. Sure. Okay. Before our last meeting, I sent her a text to ask if there was anything I could bring with me, and she responded with a long message asking me to come to a hospital appointment with her, or so I thought. My heart sank. She was asking for more than I'd offered and I felt cornered. I wrote back to say no. After that, we had a flurry of exchanges, which ended in chiding tones with her saying that I shouldn't offer help only to withdraw it. Some weeks after Fauzia died, when I'd already started to pick at who she'd been and who we had been as sisters, I reread the exchanges from that day and was first surprised and then dismayed to see that I'd misconstrued what she'd written and ascribed my own meaning to it. She had made no demand on me at all. She had responded to my offer of shopping with an explanation and apology. She had had more painful investigations in hospital, including a lumbar puncture, she wrote, which she had previously described to me, and which I imagined as a blunt knitting needle inserted into her spine to extract its fluid. She was left in such pain that it hurt to walk, so yes, could I bring some smoked salmon and bottled water? How had I decided that she was embroiling me in her care? And why was I so terrified of that? I have reminded myself that we all misread text messages and misconstrue meanings. Even so, I'm full of regret for that small shopping trip I could have made for her had I read her message correctly. It's left me wondering what else I might have misunderstood. How much of our embattled sisterhood came from my accumulated fear, anger and the concerned love that I found too painful to express? So I picked this section as I think 
misconstruing your sister's text message and ascribing your own meaning to it, as you say, is a metaphor for how so many arguments and misunderstandings can happen between siblings. It's so true. It was interesting because I was waiting to see which page you'd pick. And there are many more dramatic scenes that you could have picked that I know how to talk about. And I've sort of made peace with very painful things. I don't shy away from writing about my sister's death, our really fraught sisterhood, my father's emotional abuse, I would call it, towards my sister. I don't shy away from any of those much more relatively dramatic bits of my life and her life. But this gets to the heart of a lot of the pain between my sister and I that I can't really resolve. And I think you're right. It's that terrible sense that you get caught up in the knots of misunderstanding each other both with people alive and dead. And you can't seem to unknot it, however much you want to start afresh with that person, because there's so much intimacy, love, but complicated love, love that seems like hate at times. So my sister and I, I think we were so close. There was such trust there as teenagers. We were each other's best friends, or she was certainly my best friend. And then the elements of distrust set in. And that's where I think all the the misunderstandings began from. And at one stage in our, I think late, she was in her late 30s, I was too. And I remember we had this phone call, we had years of being friends, and then a few, you know, months or years of estrangement. So we, over her life, and there was a point in our 30s, she was on the phone, and she said to me, who started this? And I think she meant, you know, why aren't we the best friends we are meant to be. How did this misunderstanding and this distrust set in? I mean, set in is the word. It it goes Mm. so deep and it becomes so muddy and you can't Mm. really grapple in the book with kind of, yeah, who started it? What's the argument Mm. even about anymore? Yes, yes. So before we kind of dig into some of those specifics, can you just give this page a little bit of context. When did this text exchange take place? How ill was your sister at this point? And how long had you been kind of reunited? Because I know you say in the book you were estranged, but obviously at this point you're now helping her out and going over to the flat. Yeah. So this text exchange was around May 2016. And my sister, Fauzia, she died in June 2016. So what I'm talking about here is that she had been ill for months, I would say. She started becoming ill in 2015, physically ill. You know, her lungs hurt. She was coughing and coughing. Her chest just really hurt. And she was shuttling in and out of Royal Free Hospital, which is a leading research hospital in North London. And they couldn't find what was wrong with her. Then at the end of April, she was, you know, her face swelled up, as you said at the beginning, and she felt really, really bad. She called the ambulance. She was taken to A&E at the Royal Free and she had her first admission there over many days where they tried to find out what was wrong with her. They couldn't, but she was pumped with steroids and she appeared to get better. When she appeared to get better, they said, there you are, you're fine, go off home. And she did. But when she appeared to get better, we decided to meet up at her Warren Street flat, which I'd never seen. 
And at this stage, you know, my sister and I, as I say, had been really, really close in our early teens and in my early teens. And then we argued over the decades. We saw each other, we became friends and we became enemies. And until she was rushed to A&E, Fauzi and I hadn't been talking for the longest period ever. And I think it was a few years, you know, it could have been three years. It's painful even just calculating it now, mm. you know, if you know what I mean. I, I, But I think if I have to think about it, it's probably about three years, perhaps it was four years. And until my mother phoned me and said, your sister's been, you know, I knew, I always used to know what was happening for my sister because I'd always ask after her. My mum was our conduit. I've no doubt that she asked after me, but my mum was doing all the channeling of information. So I knew that in 2015, my sister had begun to get ill. But, you know, my sister had been ill in many senses of the word for much of her adult life. She had had acute eating disorder, acute eating disorder that spanned, you know, everything from bulimia to anorexia to binge eating disorder. She'd had immense, you know, depression, paralyzing, lasting decades and taking so much from her. And she'd had other, you know, all sorts of illnesses and she'd had accidents in the past. So I thought in 2015, it was another instance of that big bout of something going wrong. I was sure she'd recover. But when I got that call in May 2016, I, there was a physical reaction. It was quite late at night. And I felt utterly compelled to be there. You know, I raced there on my bike. I couldn't pedal fast enough. So I saw her at A&E and we made up immediately everything, all the misunderstanding, all the resentment, all the years of anger sort of melted away, as they always did when we made up, because we remembered how much we loved each other as sisters, how much we had to say to each other, how much we connected. So that happened at A&E. And after she came out of hospital, you know, it was really jubilant. We felt she'd recovered. This was like a sort of resurrection. She'd emerged from what could have been her deathbed and she was given a second chance. It was really exhilarating. And with that new life, I felt we'd been given our chance as sisters, you know, because we were both in our 40s. Perhaps we'd both had our enormous you know, fits of anger at each other for for whatever the other had done wrong. And we were ready to move on. I really felt that I could. When this happened, you know, we had our exchange on in a text because I was going to meet her for the in her flat for the first time. And I misread, you know, I'd misread this text because and I thought she was asking me for more than I'd offered her. And it sort of pricked so much of the past that me being the younger sister, having to support the older elder sister, never feeling supported as the younger sister by her because she couldn't support me. She had serious mental health issues. So how could she? And I felt this demand or this request, you know, from her, this imagined, I'd imagined up this request that she wanted me there at a hospital appointment was a return to that, me having to carry her and me being guilty and overburdened and feeling just like I couldn't carry her. So it began, our big, you know, being reunited began with that miscommunication all over again. But then I went to her flat and there was a little prickliness and then, you know, it melted away as it always did. 
I got to see her flat where she lived and how beautifully she'd done the flat up because she turned every her all her space into just beautiful, unique spaces and really inhabited it. And I got to see her cats that I hadn't seen for years. And most importantly, I got to see her artwork that I hadn't seen because I hadn't been on that journey with her in the last few years of her life. Because after, you know, absolute decades, she dropped out of St. Martin's, the art school St. Martin's at the age of 19. And she returned to art um, in Camberwell in her early 40s. And in between that time, even though she had an utter and total passion for art, she didn't do it. She returned to it through an embroidery class that my mum took her to at the Asian Women's Centre in North London. And I hadn't seen how her art had developed. And I was just astonished by the the amount of work she'd produced, the quality, the dazzle of it. You know, it was embroidery with pastels, with oil paints, and she'd just done the most astounding stuff. And I wanted some of it. I remember saying, God, this is the, my favourite thing you've ever done. Can I have it? And she was shy, but she didn't want to give it to me. And she was so excited to show me. She was actually breathless in showing me. So even though this page sort of speaks of that prickly, that, that painful moment of misunderstanding, it led to that, you know, being reunited with her. And and actually, it's hard because when she died, it was such a shock. I was so filled with shock and disbelief and horror. I'd forgotten the joy of that afternoon. I'd forgotten that I'd had that afternoon and actually that it was a, a gift to me. I got to have that because she got, we had this little second chance. And all for, for years, all I had was this all I remembered because I had evidence of it was a string of texts that that were proof that I'd misunderstood my sister Mm. yeah I mean the fact that that prickliness and then that joy can exist in the same day also says so much about transitioning from estrangement to closeness again it's Mm. sensitive rocky ground for a while yes uh, because you're meeting each other anew but also have that baggage of exactly these past yes. roles that you don't want to be cast in as as you say that's and it. very set set in so if we look at what those roles are what did it trigger in you this misreading this text what what was it about your oh. relationship that made you often feel like overburdened and mm. Perhaps so in the I, carer I, role, I don't know if that's putting... Yes, yes, the carer, or, or I suppose rescuer role, that's how I saw it when I was a teenager. And But she was my rescuer too, but the balance just tipped. So I think to answer that, it's a sort of return to my early childhood and very complicated uh, family dynamic that really worked against my older sister and really worked for me. And I think it's, if I could just return for a minute to that early life, beginning with my father, who um, my father was Indian born and then after partition went over to Pakistan and never really felt Pakistan was his home and sort of took up and left as early as he could and came to London and met and 
fell in love with, I'm told, a woman, you know, almost twice his age. He was in his 20s. She was in his 40s. She was German. And they lived together. They, you know, in Shepherd's Bush, lived together and married for seven years. And then his family put immense pressure on him, apparently. He went back to Lahore and separated, divorced this German woman and was married to my mother, who was 25 years old, you know, from a lovely, safe, cosy family who thought they were marrying her to this older, more experienced and sophisticated man. They didn't really know the wider context of my father's life in London. They didn't know of this previous wife. So there they are. They both agreed to marry each other. And my mother went into her marriage with all the hope that, uh, you know, a 25-year-old bride would, but my father hadn't quite left behind the love of his past. And I think it was a really difficult uh, realisation for my mum and a great disappointment and perhaps a great disappointment for my father too, to be derailed in a way and winding up in just another life. And their marriage grew into a very, very fraught and difficult one. But in the first year, you know, my mother fell pregnant in Lahore my father then left Lahore to come to London to get, you know, a place and a work, a job ready for that for my mum and the unborn child to move to London. They decided to live and migrate to London. So my sister was really born, you know, in my mum's family home. For the first 11 months of her life, she didn't see my father. She was a really ebullient, sort of happy child living with her grandparents and her mum, you know, our mum, and just being spoiled. And when she came to London and met my father, there was a disconnect and fear on her part. And that set a, a really awful, fraught and distrusting sort of note between them. You know, remember, my sister was, an, you know, one year old. So mm. she's a baby who is only responding to a fearful, new, unfamiliar situation. And that's the exact age that separation anxiety starts, isn't it? So yeah, yes, exactly. And she's been separated. I remember with my own kids, mm. suddenly you can put them in anyone's arms mm. and then they hit one. Mm. And if you put them in a stranger's arms, you're going to know about it. Screaming and crying. And mm. that's exactly what she did. And she'd had this enormous long-haul flight you know with her mother and she was in this unfamiliar place and she started crying in the arms of her father because this man was a stranger to her my father mm. sort of felt shocked by that but that shouldn't have set the tone I can imagine that scenario happening a lot actually but it certainly shouldn't be the reason that my father became extremely suspicious of his eldest child. When I was born two years later, I got the absolute opposite treatment. There was an absolute, you know, open, unreserved adoration. So I became the most loved child, the absolute favourite. And that became known and spoken of in the family and demonstrated clearly. And that stung my sister and it set her apart from me. And you know, he was very different to her. He was a strict and severe father to her. He was an absolutely amazing father to me. And when my brother was born two years after me, you know, my brother was welcomed as the sort of the boy in the family, but he still didn't dismantle in a way my primacy. And so there's this family dynamic where you have these two sisters pitted against each other in a way. And I think when we started to share a room in our early teens, we realised what had happened, that my father had treated us so differently. And I got to hear 
about my sister's very different childhood. I hadn't made all the connections and joined the dots because, you know, you're children and these are adults and you just take it as written how you're being treated by them. Do you remember instances of enjoying your position I just um when I relate your story a bit to my own personal circumstances I had a sister with um Mm. anorexia and bulimia growing up and I remember outwardly being told oh but you're at least at least you're all right at least you Mm. are getting Mm. good grades at least you're eating well and at least you've got friends and at least you're happy and I remember feeling like a sneaky kind of I don't feel mm. proud to say this, but I do remember thinking, <laughs> yeah, at least I'm yeah. really good. But I th- And that's a hell of a thing to yes, a put child. on yeah. someone. And I feel like it's going to implode the sisterly relationship. Mm. Yes. Who can survive those kind of roles? Exactly. So it's very hard to survive those type of relationships intact. And But what was interesting with my position as the favourite is that I wasn't really aware. So confident and comfortable was I in my role as the favourite, you know, the adored child in the eyes of my father. I was really very oblivious to placing that I was the loved, most loved child. I was just taking the love for granted. It was quite selfish, as children are. You know, I was receiving it and not really clocking because I was too little to clock that my sister wasn't getting loved enough at the start. And then I did, I did see that because sort of, you know, families create their own mythologies, don't they? And it became sort of part of our mythology that my father was stricter with my sister, that he told her off more. You know, she was a bit of a problem, even though she was never, that was way before she became a problem for anyone. Um, But I didn't connect it with me. You know, it's, it's a funny thing. I feel that I was almost, maybe I was willfully blind in acknowledging that I had this primacy in the family, I was having a very happy childhood and I did see other things going on, but I didn't connect them to myself. So, you know, perhaps there was something being ignored by me as a child. And then... Yeah, Yeah, I'm I'm not sure because I, well, I mean... It's funny. It's so hard to understand these things, isn't it? But I know for myself with that example, that that's quite a teenage feeling, I think. Yes. I think you're right. I think certainly, certainly up to 10, you just just enjoying how how it's going for you and there's not really that awareness. I think... But when when your sister did confide um, Mm. in you, did you feel a sense of guilt or that you had... Yes, teamed up yes, with your dad yes. in some way not that I think you did well, that, I'm just saying that's a no I think that's really so so absolutely so when my sister started really saying this was my childhood you were hugged you were adored I wasn't I saw the truth of it and I recognized what she was saying I recognized myself in in her version of our childhood and the guilt set in and it wasn't smugness it was a sort of horror I think I've been dogged by guilt and the guilt has sort of um, invaded almost every female relationship or it did for a long while you know because it was very confusing to be told here's how our father treated me and here's how you know you were treated by him and I saw that the truth of that and at once I began thinking what did I do? Did I cause this? I must have done something. I must have been complicit. I remember 
you know, the guilt of that. Was I complicit? Did I love it? Did I very selfishly love all of that and didn't care a bit that my sister was being treated quite cruelly with emotional cruelty in some respects? Also, because I, you know, adored my sister, looked up to her, the guilt became embroiled with a need to save her, with a need to make her better and maybe part of that drive and make my sister better, make her okay, was that I could absolve myself of the the feeling that I had had some complicity. And, and, you know, children don't have complicity in their parents' treatment of of you all. So it's Mm. it was wrongheaded of me. But I think that's the guilt became so complicated um, because it was tied to this duty. Mm. I felt it was a duty to, you know, keep holding my sister's hand, to pull her out of this pit of depression and the eating disorder and we'd sit down for hours and hours and talk about solutions for it and what she could do with her life and why was it all going wrong and and that lasted until I went to even when I was at university you know I was absolutely dogged by guilt by the confusion of how you know my sister was sinking and how I how could I help and then slowly I felt the impotency of me of the fact that I couldn't help. She was going further and further down the pit. And then came a sort of switch in our relationship. I had become her enemy. She sneered when she spoke to me. She spoke about me as the father's favourite, sneeringly, as if to confirm to me quite clearly that I had been complicit. I was as guilty as my father I was her enemy, and that's what she emanated for those years. And in those years, I accepted her version of of the past. I accepted I was bad. I had done bad things. Mm. I needed to make up for it. And, you know, the guilt was immense. And that's why she was, her life had gone as badly as it had. Mm. And I don't, I'm not, casting judgments on my father my father right now has got dementia and has had for 10-15 years so you know I was really really aware of I was writing this book uh, using my memories my mother was a great help to me you know I didn't really go and ask my father my brother for things he's very private and I you don't want to open up a can of worms either these Mm. are hugely sensitive and triggering things so you know and I couldn't go to my father to say why or what was going on with you and did you love your eldest child or, you know, what happened there? I couldn't put these very important questions to him. I can see how, although it's very sad to hear that, but I can Mm. see how you could say I accepted that version that I was a bad person because you're an for a innocent, while I person in, in this yeah. but I I wonder when the switch was because I can mm. see that if you're the bad person and you mm. must try to fix your sister because you're in some way uh, responsible mm. for her mm. mental illness I can see how that's eventually going to have a shelf life because of course you can't fix yes. her so how did you get to a place where you realised that it wasn't your role and Mm. that it wasn't your fault. Mm. That was a slower grind. I think that was a terrible sort of trajectory to go on. The the first moment I felt 
anger back at my sister for placing me in this position as the aggressor was when I was about 22. I'd finished my degree, I'd gone abroad to teach English in Poland actually, and I'd phone home, I was there for six months, I'd phone home and she, you know, my sister and I'd been so close that I became confused that she would come to the phone less and less when I phoned. Because normally we'd talk a lot, but my mum would always, or my dad would always make her an excuse and say she's busy or she can't talk at the moment. She started coming to the phone less and less. When I got back home, you know, returned to London, I was told she'd left home just a few days before I'd returned. She knew what day I was going to return. She'd, she'd left for Edinburgh. It was just quite random. But I hadn't for a minute thought she left as a result of me returning home because we'd sort of intermittently patch things up and I thought she wasn't angry with me anymore because she hadn't expressed anger, you know, for a while. And after I returned the next few days, I thought, oh, where are my childhood diary? I'd kept this big metal locked box that was filled with years and years and years of precious childhood knickknacks and all my diaries. I always kept diaries. So there were tons and tons of diaries there with all my secrets, with all the sh- thoughts that I was such a private child myself. And I, all, those were all the thoughts that I couldn't and didn't want to share with anyone. They were really intimate. They were, they were me talking to myself, you know, all my vulnerabilities and insecurities, and they, they were all locked in a box. That box had gone. And I asked my mum, you know, where's the box? And my brother, nobody knew. And gradually I realised my sister had left for Edinburgh and she'd taken my box. And then what then unravelled was that she'd opened the box, she'd gone through all my diaries, thrown the actual metal box away and kept the diaries, but wouldn't return. I, I was desperate to, you know, I was confused. And I I remember writing to her, I think in those days we wrote to each other, either writing a phone and saying, I think I wrote, or maybe I phoned and said, have you got my diaries? Would you mind returning them? And I got this very short note back in this faint pencil saying, I hate you. I don't ever want to see you again. That was her response to you know me saying, can I have my diaries back? And she regretted it later, you know, and I think we made up a year later. I wouldn't talk to her. She kept phoning and I wouldn't talk to her for a year. And then a year on, I said to her, please return my diaries. And they came back, you know, out of the box and just felt like soiled, sullied stuff. And it's a funny thing because that's quite a childish thing that I've talked about. She took my diaries and I got angry, blah, blah, blah. But it was so much more than that. It was that I felt raided. I felt my inner world raided. I felt she had cast me an aggressor, but actually she was doing something aggressive to me. And then after she took my diary, she kept apologizing and in a victim-like way, I thought. So I thought, how come I'm the victim here, but she's defining herself still as a victim, even though she's done the bad thing. Now that's where those spirals of blame, hurt, you know, am I victim, am I aggressor, the misunderstandings that I think they they started from there, the distrust. And, you know, years later, I was still remembering the diaries as an act of great aggression. Long after I should have let it drop, I brought it up with her, you know, in her 30s, I said, you did this. And she was shocked beyond belief saying, how can, that's a childish act, you're still clinging to that. But for me, it changed something inside me because I thought, I've had enough, this isn't fair it's when I begun to think I'm not to blame for everything. 
you know, I felt that I was being guilt-tripped, maybe not consciously, mm. into being guilt-tripped, you know, and being made responsible for her very dysfunctional and almost abusive childhood. And I realised I wasn't enough to save my sister. Whatever I did wasn't enough. So those feelings were running in tandem, this sense of I'm not responsible for this and I don't think I can handle it. I don't know how to get you out of this immense depression that you're in. I felt angry mm. towards my mother and father. Why weren't they parenting their old child? And slowly I backed away because I thought I can't be everything now to my sister. I, you know, I need to have my own mental health intact. Mm. And I tore away and I think I started living my life in a more guilt-free way. But of course, I thought it was guilt-free, but that guilt didn't really go anywhere. It just became buried. So it came out in other ways. You know, it came out with other difficult female friendships that I always seemed to be driven towards. Mm. I think what's um, extraordinary about the book is that in death or grief, neither you or your sister are saints you know you're re you're real people mm. making mistakes mm. and I find this page so deeply honest and vulnerable because you are able to paint yourself in a bad light mm. I guess I mean you say it yourself yeah. Couldn't you have just brought some smoked salmon and bottle of water <laughs> you know exactly. she had a lumbar exactly. puncture and yeah. even through what I must have been such deep shock and grief and sadness at your loss you were able to pin that down to the page that that idea that you know that it was messy and it was trouble but it there was so much love there and you know a lot of people even mm. if they've not had the extremes of estrangement or mental illness or this type of trauma mm. sibling relationships are I don't know how many places I've seen in in art in films in books this sisterhood I mean mm. I've got two sisters I'm watching my three mm. three sons love and hate. Oh, <laughs> it's a fascinating. Wow. That must be must be so interesting. Oh, I I don't know about you, fascinating. but I I do yeah, and I do think sister stories are out there. But I do I wish that we could get you know really pricklier you know more difficult understandings of of sisters because I think sister complicated love doesn't mean you don't love any less. It just is complicated. Yeah, and I almost mm. admired what you were writing because I kept thinking oh can she say that if her <laughs> sister's not alive does she feel that that's okay mm. and I thought where's my people pleasing mm. coming from this was real this is mm. what love looks like often and it can be yeah. tough yes and you can it. heal that's and you can it. come back from it and but do you wonder still how these conversations would play out have you got these regrets like but you know yeah. are you struck with how much you Pretty want to not sort of be saying this to me but to Fauzia no, I'm not. No. So I'm quite unsentimental. I come from a really unsentimental family. So this book does have a really unsentimental tone, doesn't it? It's like brutally honest because I didn't want solace from this writing of it. I didn't want sugariness. You know, I just wanted um, to understand myself, my sister, my family, understanding and honesty. And the regret. So regret mm. is a thing, isn't it? Because it feeds guilt. Mm. Um, I do. When I read a page like this, I feel great. I mean, it's almost like a form of anger at myself. Like, how could you? So I feel like chiding, like telling myself off. Mm. How on earth could you not read a text properly? 
And I know we all do it. I still do it now. Mm. You make assumptions. You bring your fears to whatever. I would say 90% of my arguments with my sisters are from WhatsApp miscommunication. Really? Absolutely. Yeah. Without question. Exactly. I mean, I could have just spoke on the phone we could have never had that misunderstanding but we would have had other misunderstandings you know because that was the what was happening here with the text messages wasn't actually about words or text messages it was about the way we were as sisters sadly look I feel there was a the gift of her us making up what if I had got that phone call from my mum in May 2016 saying your sister's in A&E and I would have rushed and she wouldn't have would have died there and then without me making up that I think would be horrific but I would have to make peace with that and I've sort of made peace with all the things I didn't say because I really believe this maybe this is delusion but I think people who love each other know they're loved you know my sister when I rushed to her and we made up at A&E there was no sense of, oh, I need to explain or say sorry. I don't, you know, one thing I do regret is not saying sorry enough to her because there were aggressive acts on my part. And I ne- because as a smaller sister, I never apologised. And I hate that about myself within the family. So that's what I regret. If she was here, you know, I wouldn't really want to say, by the way, I misunderstood your text, blah, 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 and and get into the The granular bits. But I would just say, I'm sorry I was, you know, ignored you. Um, But I know that she knew I loved her. And, you know, that's quite key, I think. So I'm quite confident my sister knew I loved her. I think she felt loved by me. She also felt that I was a complete cow and, you know, really unfair to her and had fits of anger and she back at me and that we were all, we both squared up to each other and that our love was really made messy, you know, for lots of reasons, including my father's positioning of us but also just because we're sisters you know and we were close and I think sisters are like that so I don't I think she knew I loved her a lot and I think that for me is a great Mm. it brings some sort of calm Mm. at Mm. the moment I felt feel this is a total illusion oh well I've expressed it in this book so it's somehow neatly you know, laid down on the page. But of course, over the years, it's only been five years, you know, I'll have to deal with, I think you carry that, your relationship with somebody who's died carries on actually Mm -hmm. changing and growing. And I think there will be times when I'll feel new regrets and new versions of guilt. But, Mm. you know, that's just us, we carry this around and relationships, I don't think are ever resolved. (laughs) And did you both, because you're both so, well, you're so open about both of your struggles with eating disorders and with bulimia Mm. were you able to comfort each other in some way and share in what you both got from compulsive eating I think we were only able to share the compulsive eating as an act that brought us close together in our teen years so we did it together and she went into full-scale bulimia and anorexia and purging and I didn't I just put on loads of weight and I just sort of changed shape from a really thin child to not a thin one and you know I was in denial about what I was doing and then of course my sister's eating disorder became far bigger than mine I never purred I just overate and underate and that's what I've done for decades until I tried to grapple with it more consciously but I in a way felt almost denied the eating disorder within myself because my sister had a much bigger much more acute one So it was easy to ignore me. It was easy to pretend that nothing was going on with me. 
even though of course I knew it was because I looked a completely different shape. I was spending hours eating with her. And then when I left her, I was spending hours in the night eating alone or, you know, in front of people and people didn't understand what I was doing because there was so hyper. And do you think that denial is quite a theme? Because I know having an older sister with mental health issues, my I felt like my problems were never as big as her so they can't really exist or they can't really matter did you sort of have to teach yourself no this this matters too I know you're not being hospitalized today but it's still a bad day and that's okay I totally had to learn that but even when I was learning it I felt well this is fraudulent I don't really have an eating disorder you know even when I've been quite underweight it just seems too unbelievable because I've got a sister who was scarily underweight or scarily overweight. So, and I wasn't that scary. So, you know, when I went and had sessions at an eating disorder clinic, I just thought, should I be here? I don't understand. You know, this is not really something that requires other people's interventions. (laughs) Um, And it's taken ages to acknowledge that I have a problem. And And also, not everything can be solved. It's how to live with, first how to recognise that you have disordered eating and then what you are capable or want to do with it and what recovery means to you. Maybe it's living alongside it. Maybe it's having a less acute version of it. So all those things I had to work out quite late in my life Mm -hmm. rather than earlier on when I was denying it. But also when she died, I think I'd never really admitted properly that I had bouts of depression too and I had to slowly realize that you know I felt almost when I was looking in the mirror that I was sort of becoming more my sister's face and I think that was me realizing there was elements of my sister's sister and me and and that element one of the elements was you know depression and that I could look at it in the face for some reason and I needed to because it was it suddenly got big because of the grief. And where do you think that amazing your sister's amazing capacity to be unwell loudly, as it were. Yeah. Where did that come from? It really made from. me feel that I definitely was part of a generation of shame mm. and you mm. hide things from your parents and then your parents look mortified if you do tell them and kind of like, oh, no, we can't, yes. we can't have this. <laughs> Don't yes. tell the neighbours. You know, how, how, where did she get that unapologetic, that... here I am, ill, accept it? I don't know, because I'm really, I was really impressed by it. I mean, she shouted it to the world. She was shameless, you know, in the best sense. I think she got it from my father's sisters who are big and dramatic and loud. And mm-hmm. my mother, who was very vocally angry and argumentative. She, was, she wasn't a quiet, even though she suffered in her marriage, she didn't suffer quietly. There were histrionics, there were tears, there were screams, you know, they would scream at each other. And we saw that women could be loud and you could express ugly feelings. And they were terrifying because my parents' arguments were terrifying. Mm. But we saw that it was a way to be. Right. My sister was just a quite a force to be reckoned with. She was quite a big character. And she mm. wouldn't let the world tell her, you know, make her hide her depression. I think... Some of where she got that was anger. She had such overwhelming anger at the injustice of that childhood that she had Mm. that it was too big to be kept quiet. She needed to tell the world that she had been treated unfairly. And I think that's why she was shouting about the eating disorder and about the rest of it. And, you know, 
shouting in supermarket aisles and smashing plates and throwing them out of the window. She was angry at the world. She turned from anger at the family to anger at the world. How do you grapple with the sense of injustice five years on? Does that settle in some mm. way that, that the I, doctors missed that she had TB? Has Can that get any easier? The TB was, yes, it was absolutely woefully missed. It was not diagnosed. The TB was diagnosed the day after she'd had a hemorrhage. That meant she was dead. She was on her way. You know, she was really dying and there was no way back. And 24 hours later, she was declared dead. And TB is an illness that, as we know, is ancient and it's curable with six months worth of antibiotics. So there was such a horror in that. There was an absolute horror. And I felt very let down by the, by the doctors for that reason. Even though her TB was hard to diagnose, there were signs there. And I feel that those signs were missed. And they talked about missed opportunities in the report that they then sent us, the medical report. But I was actually more horrified. As, you know, on top of that horror, there was the horror of dealing with doctors that I found to be unsympathetic, sitting by her bedside, deathbed, talking about tubercular women in opera as if it was a glamorous thing one doctor said your sister didn't help herself because of her mental health you know her unreliability because of her mental health issues which was a disgrace because none of her death <laughs> and the tuberculosis had and the the lack of diagnosis had to do Nothing with her men do with you know, mental condition and no and it's such a shame that doctors feel that mental health that they can't navigate that and feel that they can only distrust you know this is I'm talking more generally now you know that people with mental health issues are distrusted and they thought she was on drugs she was taking drugs when she wasn't they got me to go to her home and bring back all her bath oils at one stage a ludicrous line of inquiry that her bath oils might be poisoning her I mean it was laughable so there was all of that to handle but one of the ways in which it did help to write this book you know, I hate it when people say, oh, I ho hope the book has helped you like it's a diary. It's not, it wasn't a diary. It was never meant to be therapy. It's a book. But one of the ways it did help me was the research into TB. I talked to TB doctors and this amazing professor who explained its elusive qualities, its, you know, mythologies, its romance. You know, it's had this terrible romance in the past, all the science around it. And I studied very hard my sister's medical notes and I made peace with the fact that this happened she she died in an amazing you know North London hospital of an ancient disease curable disease because it wasn't diagnosed and I realized that medicine is has made such advances but it's still got there's a humanness in medicine you know human beings mm. fallible human beings are trying their best you know and sometimes the humanness means that they there's no diagnosis when when I feel there should have been. So I will always till my dying day remain appalled and quite unforgiving of those doctors actually I've got to say which sounds a bit mean but you never forget some of those words said to you when your sister's died because they haven't diagnosed something. So I guess there's a unforgiving part of me but it's been put away. You know I I talk about a really really important moment when I go to Rome, I'm tracing my sister's footsteps. She got her first big bout of depression at the age of 19 and she went to the Sistine Chapel and she came back exhilarated. So I took a trip to the Sistine Chapel and there was something about that trip that took away a lot of the anger about the medical side of things. 
because Susan Chapel really moved me because she'd sat there and I was sitting there and she'd looked up and I'd looked up and there was life and death and you know love and hate and good and evil in that room you know it was just so big and magnificent wow so you felt a remarkable shift in the anger yeah I did you know I didn't um while I was sitting there but almost instantly after I'd left it I felt a massive shift in the anger I was almost disappointed because anger's an energy isn't it and it's always been a big energy in our family um, oh, anyway, listen, you thank you so much for this. I really thank appreciate you. your time. All right. And Not good at all. luck. Yeah, and I've just the Costa announced I'm on the shortlist. So they've, at my publishers having this party, and I've got to be there in like 20. 20 oh, yeah, I've got wow, to be there. Wow, that's amazing past. news. So I've You've got, got to rush, rush off. Enjoy yeah. the party. <laughs> yeah, thank you well, so well much. Deserved. Take care. Take care. Bye, Aretha. <laughs> Cheers. Bye, bye, bye. Thank you for listening to Paige. If you've got a moment, I'd love it if you could rate and review this episode to help me get the word out and keep the show going. You can also find great photos and information about next episodes over on Twitter and Instagram at Abbyholic. Oh, and please subscribe. Did I say that? Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Page is a Good Tape production, produced by me, Abby Hollick, original music by Paddy Jervis and Rob Sell for Torch and Compass, sound engineer support from Hunter Charlton and Chris Sharp, graphic design from Tim Hughes. Thanks, team. <laughs> <laughs>